I'm Ray, a storyteller, educator, mom, and your host of Homeroom, an international podcast bridging the education gap between the classroom and the living room. Growing up, my single immigrant mom was so busy working multiple jobs to make ends meet, she couldn't afford to give me a lot of her time. So she relied on schools to teach me everything about how to succeed in life. But under-resourced and over-standardized, our one-size-fits-all education system had other priorities. In this liminal space of unmet expectations, I fell into a blind spot. Homeroom is my attempt to figure out why. In this first season, I speak with people in all walks of life from around the world about their own experiences with our education systems. I want to know what worked, what didn't, and what ideas they have on improving it for our next generation. In this episode, I speak with Jenna, a writer, world traveler, mom, and former mayor about the lasting impacts of imposter syndrome, perfectionism, and the difficulty of divorcing our self-worth from the value we provide for others. We talk about our childhood challenges, the people who believed in us when we didn't or couldn't, and the poignant lessons we learned about ourselves by being honest with our therapists and, most importantly, ourselves. Here is our edited conversation. I think there have been breadcrumbs along the way that when my brain decided to pay attention, (laughs) and I want to be very clear, I think this is a luxury. Anybody who has the time and space, even if it's just for a day, to come into consciousness of the glass shattering in your head, something is going on there. I want to be clear. I think some people reach it because they hit a crisis mode. I think other people reach it because, oh, well, I'm currently not you know, raising a baby or trying to get through school or trying to feed my family or, you know, there just comes a moment where it's different for everyone. I would love somebody to do some research on this if it hasn't already been done. (laughs) You know, the, the different fluctuations of moments when our brains are ready. And so when I was younger, my parents were very, very clear. It you are adopted. We love you. To them, that was enough. Love is enough. Um, the end. And that worked for me for a really long time. It did. And and in some ways, it continues to as I then add pieces to that puzzle. So I went to heritage camp as a kid. My mom and a friend of hers, when I was in third grade, put together with the teacher a Korean culture segment you know, they went to the market who knows how far away to get kimchi. And we made, you know, we practiced with chopsticks and we did a little history. And what's so interesting about that is that if someone explicitly said to me, your mom's helping with this and we're doing this for you, like for your benefit and your classmates benefit, I didn't pick up on it. I almost a little bit have a memory of what a coincidence. This is so cool. We're having a unit on this and I happen to be Korean. You know, there was just no, it probably should have been obvious, but that's just one example of just how disconnected I was from so many things, you know, little seedlings. And as I look back at old 
I have just recently gone through this because we made a very big move recently when you go through all of the childhood things that you save. So I did have a lot of awareness. I wrote pretty frequently from as early on as middle school, you know, what makes you unique? Oh, I'm from Korea. So I had more awareness than I thinking back thought that I did, which is great. You know, and then as I started to, I, I believe I probably ignored it the most when I got into middle school. And then I did a senior project in high school, just, you know, very bare bones, Wikipedia based. Well, at the time it would have been like Encyclopedia Britannica online, right? Um, Korean culture project. And then I got to college and just sort of, you know, became a mess like everybody else. But my senior year, I did a final project for a diversity studies minor that I can't even believe I was mature enough to get myself into. And a classmate and I did a final project presentation on finding organic ways to put yourself in positions. So maybe it's not organic if you do that where you are somebody who doesn't look like everybody else. So for her as a white woman going abroad for the first time and realizing, you know, you intellectually know I'm going to a different country, so everyone's not going to look like me, but you don't know until you get there. And she right. had this experience of, <gasps> so she started coming up against the mirror in a very natural way about her white privilege and what does that mean? And she never would have had to think about it had she never had that experience. And for me in an opposite way, going to college and receiving surveys in at the time in our mailboxes, not online. Hi, Jenna, how are you? You are a person of color on this campus and we just wanna make sure you're okay. Would you like to come to the Office of Multicultural Affairs? We're here for you. And I would get these flyers and be just dumbfounded. Why am I getting these? Why am I being treated in with extra support in a way that I don't identify? And even at the time I found that to be confusing and I was smart enough to like think this is a clue and then I would forget about it. <laughs> you know, I joined the Asian Student Coalition, you know, I, I, I started to, you know, but there were, we were so at such a small school. It wasn't like there was a Korean club, you know, it was international students from Nepal, from Israel, you know, we were from China, we were everywhere, there was me. And, you know, more breadcrumbs, we would go to conferences that were really designed for first generation Asian Americans. And I would go and like fit in, but not really fit in because I didn't grow up with Asian parents. So that was another clue. Something's going on here. Then, you know, I got into my career and I ended up in higher education a little bit by default, but it ended up being a good fit, you know, in my life. And I would include people like you as, as part of this. There have just been folks who I'm eternally grateful for. And I, and I think we have them. Everyone has them. They reach out to you. It's a teacher. It's a coach. It's a future boss and says, I have more life experience than you. And I think you would be good at this, or I think that you should try this. And having the courage to, or blind faith, I don't know what you want to call it, to say yes, has happened to me several times in my life. And this was one of those moments where um, they are, they still continue to, to be mentors and really good friends of mine. When I graduated from college, I went off somewhere else for about a year and they called me back. And they said, we think you would be good at this. And what it was, was a job and student life administration. It was entry level 
at the time, though, as I started to learn more, it should, probably should not have been entry level. I was in charge of mm. the student discipline process for the university, which is a big, 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 big job. Um, but they said to me at the time they were looking for someone who would have the energy to build a program around it. I mean, it's a lot of case law. It's a lot of code of student conduct, building policy, implementing processes, procedures, you know, it, it's a lot of process-based things, but then also having the ability to sit down with students and parents as a 23-year-old, by the way, which is how old I was, to say, well, you, you did this and that's violating co code part BA of the code. And so we have to take you to this process for a hearing and then you'll have an appeal process and it might be that you are no longer able to attend the school or <laughs> whatever it was. So I ended up building this program over the course of five years when I realized I went to conferences with a lot of older white men and realized, oh, this, this probably shouldn't be an entry-level position. Getting paid $3 an hour is a lot of responsibility. So I went and I got my degree and I lobbied to, to take my office out of the department it was in. And be, I became a director of my own office to run this program. So it was, um, my whole life has been a lot of trying to prove myself. And so when I came out of that, having worked many, many hours <laughs> at the school, it's like a thankless job. You know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy, a lot of reward. But we ended up moving out of that um, town that we loved and moving away from the job and the people and friends and community we had developed. Again, first taste of a small town. Wow this is what a community feels like, right? This is what it means to go to the grocery store and know everybody and <laughs> go into the market street festivals and go to the parades and the local high school is very big, you know, that kind of thing. To moving to the Philadelphia suburbs where we intentionally wanted a place that if we ever had kids, they would have some identity in the place that they were. And this is again, before I started coming into consciousness about my Korean American identity or the how adoption played a role in my life. But even then I knew that I knew identity was important and I knew that interconnectedness and being with others was important. So add on to that, me as a new stay at home mom with my son, who both my kids were very good babies. You know, toddler land is a whole different story, but as babies, they slept a lot and I was used to working 60 hours a week. So when it, this opportunity came up and this here was another situation where somebody said, we think you should run for mayor of our small town. That's literally how it happened. I wanna say that I was going out there to make a difference and be a face to lead and None of that was true. It was after a little while when I realized what I was getting myself into and started actually doing the work. But at the time it was, I could do this. And someone asked me and gosh, how hard could it be? <laughs> um, so, you know, how many times do we do things in life where, oh, if only we knew then what we know now. But both of the situations that I outlined, both like sort of my first big job out of college and someone saying, hey, do you want to be mayor? Um, you know, gosh, they've been the most rewarding things ever, plus having my children. But in a professional sense, <laughs> having the opportunity and someone saying, why don't you give this a try? Has been so I had this foundation of. Um, liking people, liking events, liking community. And that's how I ended up in the mayor's office. Oh my gosh. There's, 
There's so much here. Uh, but you said trying so hard to prove myself. And um, I think that kind of thought came up again through multiple things that we've already talked about today alone um, about this thread of feeling like you need to prove yourself. And yet the two experiences, the two professional experiences that you had that were very rewarding for you were things that you received because somebody already thought you would be a good fit for? I think, and I've thought about this a lot in raising my own children, which I have to say, as you are going through your own identity analysis, and as you are learning more about early childhood development and, oh gosh, you know, touch and warmth and connection and attachment and all those things turns out are super real and scientifically based, <laughs> which I think I just never thought about. I mean, I'm not really sure who's thinking about that, like as a teenager or young adult, but even when I first had my son, you know, I would try to be like very by the book, very old school that here's how you should act. Here's how you should be. Um, out in public, you know, all the things. And thinking really hard about a few simple things of how do we express emotion and were we allowed to do that as a child, et cetera. And I think that uh, all parents do the best they can every day. Well, okay, most parents do the best they can every day. And I think Dr. Becky, the parenting expert says, as long as you are even thinking, am I doing a good job? You probably are. So that's probably true of so many things. If you have some awareness, because I, th I do think awareness is 90% of it, of everything. If you have some awareness, you're probably, you're probably showing love and doing the best you can. And I believe I was raised in a pretty, for lack of a better phrase, I was raised in a pretty old school way. You know, you do what you're supposed to do. Of course, you're supposed to do your homework. Um, we're not going to overly dote on you because we don't want your head to be too big. And, you know, we have a lot of quiet pride for you. I know my parents love me. I know they are so proud of me. They weren't real verbal people about it. And as I know myself now, and I'm a nerd and do, you know, the MBTI and the Enneagram and the strengths class, I mean, if there's an assessment out there, I've taken it because I find those to be so fascinating. Um, knowing what I know about myself now, I'm just wired to be someone who needs a lot of feedback. Former student who's now a friend of mine, and he has a running joke, even before I knew any of these things, like, you know, really about myself. We both knew, like, his job as my intern was to come in and say, good job, Jenna. And I'd say, thank you. And then I would just continue on my day, right? <laughs> so I don't know if it was just, um, yeah, I certainly didn't have the words to be able to say, you know, what would be really useful for me is constant feedback. But I was getting those, you get those things so naturally in school. You know, you get a letter grade, you win the election, you win the competition, right? So those are things, and, and you know, and it becomes like a, a really big dopamine hit, you know, and if you can just continue to strive and get there, and in the back of your mind, if you're not conscious of it yet, but thinking, gosh, I just don't know if I fit in. And I wonder if there's something about me that's wrong because not only do I not look like anybody else, I don't act like anyone else in my family. This has, this is no fault, no blame. You just, I've met 
my husband is nothing like his brothers or his parents, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with that. It, but when there's the added layer of you also don't look like anyone else anywhere. I think there was something I was internalizing about myself. You know, I'm outgoing. I'm a little bit artsy. I am, I don't look like anyone else. I know that I'm loved, but I still feel a need to distinguish myself in some way, even though every day I'm going out into the world and looking different, but yet I'm not really acknowledging that part of myself. Mm. So there's, there's just so much confusion there in the way, you know, and so that impacts everything. So that's why I say I am very, very grateful for the people who were seeing things in me that I just was not equipped to see in myself yet. And that is so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Having to prove myself. And yet people were saying, look, you can do this. <sighs> so um, I first started seeing my current therapist uh, about a little over three years ago. And um, I think she kind of has this way of saying, you know, she doesn't like to pathologize. She doesn't like to give labels. And so it's it's through these sort of like um, – conversations that I have with her that I'm bringing these diagnoses to her and she's kind of sort of confirming them. Right. Um, and so for at least the two first two years, I didn't realize what we were working on. Mm. And, um, there was a point at which I was like, I think I'm healed. And, um, <laughs> two more sessions, right? Two more sessions and then we'll be finished forever. I, I know everything about myself. Got it. Fantastic. <laughs> So I had that moment with my therapist and she kind of was like, hold on, you know, rein me back in. And um, she was like, let's still look at all of the different areas in your life where perfectionism is actually making a negative impact. Mm. Right. And that was before we, you know, realized, oh, these like digestion, digestion issues that I've been having. Oh, that's definitely perfectionism. Um, and that compulsion that you have to eat a certain way. Yeah, we would call that an eating disorder. But you know what? The root cause of that is your perfectionism, right? Um, this, you know, issue that you have about feeling like you're not a good mother. Let's take a look at that. Yep. That's perfectionism. And so, you know, as we started to peel back the layers, I was like, O-M-G. <laughs> like every issue that I have that is either manifesting mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or even physically has a root cause of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And something that my Eastern medicine doctor recently told me was that so I have hypothyroidism and she said that one of the types of hypothyroidism are the types are the people who will do so much for everybody else um but rarely does something for themselves um or you know puts themselves last and you know I was starting to untie all of these like issues that I was suffering from and manifesting in really bad ways, I was realizing, oh, I'm meeting everybody else's expectations, but I haven't even figured out what I want to do with my life. And then at some point, I was starting to like 
get back into writing and, you know, working on a series. And I was really sort of doing that on the side, but I was like, oh, maybe I should turn this into something. Um, and then I was like, oh, maybe I should start a business too. And, you know, like I had all these ideas bubbling and I was like, oh, maybe I should actually use this time wisely and make all of these things happen. But I didn't value my dreams enough to actually manifest them to the point, to the threshold needed to get the work done. Like, you know, if a boss was like, hey, right, you need to do this, um, or you need to put this curriculum together. No problem. I can do that in two weeks. But for some reason, when it was my dreams and my projects and the things that I wanted to leave behind before I leave the earth, I was like, it's not worth it. You know, this is not important enough. And so I can relate. Well, two things. Is, does that go back to everyone's needs before mine and or self-worth of Mm, this project's probably not even that good. So why would I complete it? Third, it's very easy when you're wired to be, or for, for whatever reason, people pleaser and perfectionist, because when a boss says, can you do this? Then there's all kinds of great endorphins that come from, I did it. It's great. I got feedback, A plus, fantastic achievement, you know, box checked. And when it's for mm -hmm. yourself and you have to hold yourself accountable for those things and you're not getting external feedback to say, good job, I think there's a lot wrapped up in that as well. Oh, my gosh. All three, All things, three things, Jenna. Like, you nailed them. Like, target. And fourth, and we haven't touched on this and we'll need a whole other episode in order to do that. <laughs> but there is something, and I'd be curious what you think. I know that part of my continue, we focus a lot on, I need to prove myself to myself. But the other thing is, if I stay busy enough, then I don't have to think about X, Y, or Z. I don't have to think about the fact that I have these floating birth parents out there that I've never given any mind to. I don't have to think about the fact that whatever it happens to be, and if we keep busy enough. So I think there are many, many things at play here. And the most difficult question is, what will make you happy? What do you want? And the fact that that is a difficult question says something I think about. There's a few things at play, I think. This is not academic. This is just my observation. I think <laughs> when you have a film of society and, and expectations, placed over top of yourself and then your own personal life experiences and story and the things that you're in, in every interaction you've had and the relationships that have taught you to act one way or another and 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 um we're not thinking about any of those things because you're just trying to live your life and so when the thread as you're saying starts to unravel i always talk about the dominoes starting to fall like first domino falls in your brain and get ready. <laughs> it mm. just keeps going. There's always something sort of simmering underneath the surface. Like I could be doing something more or that's not good enough. Or I did that thing. I checked the box, but hmm, what's next? And I do think some of that is 
I think some of it is trauma, little T related from having six, at least six separations before I was a year old. Um, and then having, you know, to prove, my, you know, like what we talked about before growing up and being a young, young adult and not understanding all the things yet. And I would say I'm not close to understanding everything, but I have been able to at least give myself the grace to wake up and not feel bad. I, I did reach a point in therapy where I did write a note for myself, Jenna, you no longer have to prove yourself to you anymore, which I think I can say that out loud. I think I'm starting to believe it. I think if you asked any of my friends or anyone close to me, they would say, of course, just like I would say to them, but really uh, embracing it and and having it be a core of myself to live with integrity and to make sure that I'm living in the present and really feeling what I'm feeling and not pushing anything away, telling the people close to me my truth, you know, trying to live my most authentic life for my kids so that I can be most patient and show up for them. I think in some ways it adds a lot of pressure, but in other ways, maybe it takes a little bit of pressure off. You know, this journey continues. Mm. We're doing the best we can every day. We don't have to solve it all right now. A girlfriend, a really good friend of mine always, always tells me that. Maybe she heard it from her therapist. We don't have to solve mm. it all right now. And I think little nuggets like this are so useful. So um, a little while back or several in several of her posts, um, Nikki, mm. either often or of 10, um, she uh, has shared a book that has been really helpful in her healing journey um, called Running on Empty mm. by Dr. Janice Webb. And um I, I finally listened to it like several weeks ago and, um, it was really revelatory. Is that a word? Yeah, um, it, is, it is now. <laughs> yes. It was really good. Um, and you know, in the first like section, uh, the author talks about, I think 12 different ways that we, that children could have been emotionally neglected by their parents. And um, she basically at the start is like, you know, read through all of them because you might think that, you know, you're, you fall in the first few, but it might be that there's like a blend of some of these. And um, as I was listening to it, I was realizing that, you know, so I was raised by my single immigrant mom um, and I didn't, I, you know, I'd never, I hadn't met my birth father until I was an adult basically. And, um, and she did really the best that she could and she loved me and I cannot fault her for anything that she gave me because she sacrificed everything um, to give me the life that I had. And I love her dearly, even though sometimes it might not look like that. Um, but um, I was thinking about how because she didn't have the time to uh, and the attention that she could give me, like some of my peers who had both their parents, 
And so what my mother did was, you know, she outsourced a lot of the attention and time to like daycare, after school programs, um, other extracurricular activities or, uh, you know, family members. I, w- I remember staying with a lot of my family members and being bounced around um, from, you know, like my cousins and aunts and uncles. And uh, I I loved that. And I loved my grandparents and I loved all of those experiences. But I feel like I didn't just have one parent, you know, I had this village and they were all sort of like piecemealing the attention that they could give me, right? Because they had children, they had other things that were going on. And, you know, I realized through reading or listening to this book that because I had so many parents, um, I wasn't really getting the validation or the attention or the love that I felt like I needed to validate that my emotions were okay to feel. I always felt like I had to minimize my own needs to make sure that I wasn't inconveniencing Mm. everybody else. Mm -hmm. And after reading or again, listening to the book, I was like, oh my goodness, like this makes a lot of sense for me as to where all this perfectionism is coming from, where all of this like needing to prove myself is coming from where, you know, like my self-worth is constantly being questioned because I hadn't had that time in my youth to have my emotional needs met and validated. And I'm wondering, like, is there a way to build that in to our own, like, mental systems? But I'm wondering, how do we sort of build that validation within us so that we don't need to get it from the outside. And I'm not saying that getting it from outside isn't um, healthy because I think it absolutely is. It's, it's, you know, social health. Uh, Health is really when you're able to connect socially with other people, Mm. right? If we're looking at like the polyvagal ladder, um, at the very top of it is social connection, right? And so being able to socialize and and have these positive social interactions are very incredibly healthy. But how do we also build it into our inside so that when we have a lack from the outside that we're not, you know, dominoes falling everywhere like you were talking about? I think this comes full circle to the very first words out of our mouth an hour and a half ago, which is how do we take the things that the people who we know love us the most see us as and internalize it for ourselves? I don't know what the answer is or how we do that, but, you know, sometimes I'll be venting or my girlfriend will be venting and we have to stop and say, don't say that about my friend. You know, don't, you know, because we're talking about ourselves. Well, I can't believe I blah, 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 blah. So we're very quick, you know, to, to say those things and reflect back uh, to the person who we care about. And so how do you be in the present 
and be aware of yourself physiologically, which five years ago I would have said, oh, that's crap. Like, oh yeah, I'm tired, but you can just push through. You know, that's the American way. Just push through, you know, ignore all that. Again, you know, one of the other many layers. And control internally the different, you know, the movie in and out, the different parts of ourselves that are trying to protect us because they are enacted whenever there's a crisis or conflict and they think they're right and they want to help you, right? The different parts of ourselves that want to help us, you know, especially when we're tired or especially when we're, you know, in a moment of feeling like we don't have the ability to say what we really need to say. How do we stop and just take control of our, our present selves to be our most authentic selves in the moment? And I don't know if anyone ever achieves that, but I think that for me, that is the goal. Much easier said than done, but I think uh, each of us is on a journey to really get there. I don't know that you would ever talk to anyone who would say that that's not the goal, but it's just a matter of if somebody's in a place of recognizing it for themselves. And I wish it were just one thing. Like As we have unpacked over this course of our conversation here, it's so many things interwoven, interconnected, one's impacting the other one, one showed up in our life at a different time. We're probably not even thinking about the whatever trauma that happened in college that we forgot and blocked out of our minds that will emerge a year from now, just when we thought we had it all together. You know, <laughs> so there's, there's a lot happening. But I think the first part of it is awareness. The second part of it is being honest with ourselves. And the third part is realizing this journey is just never going to end it's in, in a good way. <laughs> it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. And I don't mean like toxic positivity, right? So I, I want to sit in the hole with anybody who just needs to have someone sit in the hole with them and validate that something feels really bad or, you know, I'm having a bad day. It doesn't need to be, well, you know, pull yourself up. I think there is a lot of forgiveness involved. There's a lot of giving ourselves a lot of giving ourselves a break and surrounding ourselves with people who are going to understand the journey that we're on and help give us what we need, especially if we're telling them directly what we need. And all of those things, can anyone achieve all of those things, right? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Thank you for tuning into our conversation. Speaking with Jenna made me reflect on my journey through therapy of cycling through four therapists before finding my current gem of a human being. I approached her in 2020, a presidential election year, when the divisive rhetoric from a Facebook discussion triggered my childhood traumas. I had shared on my wall with my thoughts on how insensitively the national narrative around the history of the transatlantic slave trade was being handled by right-wing conservatives. And then it happened. Strangers to each other, my friends and acquaintances from both sides of the divide flocked to my wall for what became a week-long debate filled with many of the same hallmarks as a presidential one. Generalizations, dodging of questions, painting false dichotomies, and even character assassinations. For each back and forth I had with those across enemy lines, my heart raced, my hands trembled as I typed, and the acid in my stomach 
seared through my esophagus. This whole exchange exacerbated the message that I was other, different, inferior, and that because I was other, that I would only be accepted in the country where I was born and raised if I admitted that both the systemic and interpersonal racism I experienced my entire life was a lie. Even though I had taught debate for five years prior to this exchange, this one felt so personal that it rewired my programming, instincts, and behavior to register any disagreement as a threat to my life. My nervous system, already deeply familiar with social disconnection from a young age, bred even more distrust of people. 2024 is another presidential election year. But this time, I have one rule. That while disagreement is allowed and encouraged, that invalidation of lived experiences will not be tolerated. Thank you so much for listening. If any part of this episode resonated with you, please connect with us on social media at the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to share your own education journey with us on this podcast, please send me a DM on Instagram. Instagram.